was a young pastor, I found that teaching week to week required a lot of creativity on my part. I had to find a way to uh, capture people's attention. And I, I, I saw the Bible as this book that was full of so many different topics. It, it was just, I didn't know how I could possibly sum them all up. And week in and week out, it just freaked me out. Until I moved to Southern California and began to sit under the teaching of a 69-year-old pastor who had been in ministry 50 years. His name was is Floyd Strader. And Pastor Floyd, I began to notice every single sermon, every one, week in and week out, he landed on John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Every week he found a way to work it back to Jesus. And at first it bothered me. I think, come on, Floyd, be creative. <laughs> you talked about that last week. But he would just keep coming back to Jesus. And it seems to me that the older I get, the more I realize that it is truly just about him. And that everything does come back to Jesus. And if we don't talk about Jesus when we gather, we have missed the whole reason for gathering. It's kind of like having a weekly anniversary celebration and coming in and not saying anything about the person that you have been married to all this time. And so we determine to focus on and think about and consider Jesus. And it's by His power that we do what we do. It's by His power that we grow it all, that we learn, and that we can live in this life. And Jesus, we pray to You this morning, and we worship You and we thank You for commanding our attention. We pray that you will sit in the middle of all of our teaching and our focus today. And we'll see you both in this service and in the next, Father. And we'll all see Jesus. I want you to open your Bibles. Uh, to the book of Joshua chapter 11 and put your finger there and then go directly over to Ephesians chapter 6. We'll be in Joshua 11 this morning, but beginning with Ephesians, I mentioned Wednesday night, the book of Joshua, one of the interesting things about it is it doesn't only parallel the book of Revelation, which it does in an amazing way. And we, we taught about that, we talked about that several weeks back. Um, the, the comparison, the prophetic in the book of Joshua and how you see it playing out in the book of Revelation. They're like parallel books. And it's a really amazing thing. But there's another book that parallels the book of Joshua, and that's the book of Ephesians. Because Joshua is all about the people taking possession of the promised land. Ephesians is all about you and I taking possession of the promises of God. And so it's a great book to, to be reading hand in hand with Joshua as we read the conquests and we read the struggles and, and we read how, how Joshua kept coming back to the Lord. You also read in Ephesians the call to return to that place of promise, to that place of trust in the Lord. And Paul rounds out this letter to the church in Ephesus in chapter 6 in a very interesting way, especially when you consider the book of Joshua. He says in verse 10 of chapter 6, Finally, be strong in the Lord. And the strength of his might with echoes of be strong and courageous. 
He says in verse 11, Put on the full armor of God, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness. Against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Paul says, pray on my behalf. I would extend that. Pray on each other's behalf. That utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For which Paul says, I am, and I would say for which we are, ambassadors. Paul says in chains that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Father, we want to put on the full armor. We want to wear the armor, not just one piece, not just a a couple of different implements, but, but Lord, the whole armor. We want to be covered from head to foot by your authority, by your will, by your purpose, by your desire. We want to be shielded by our faith in you, our trust in you. Having on our feet the gospel of peace. Having, covering our our chest with the breastplate of, of righteousness. Girded up with truth, Father. We want to bear the sword of the Spirit. Father, we want to stand firm, but it's not easy to stand firm in this world. As, as Larry prayed moments ago, our flesh is exposed. And we pray for a removal of the flesh and a deepening of the indwelling of your Holy Spirit, the outpouring of your Spirit, that we might be covered with your full armor. Jesus, this morning as we study through another chapter of this great book, we ask that you will speak to us and teach us and show us how to put the armor on. Show us, Lord, how to wear what we are to wear. Give us your strategies, Father. Your campaign. So that we might fight the battle we are called to fight. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I remind you again that the book of Joshua is a stunning illustration of the Spirit-filled, Spirit-led life. It is a book where the issue is faith, and faith is taking possession of the promises of God. Yeah, we know you said that last week. I know, I said it the week before too, and I'll probably say it next week. (laughs) Faith is taking possession of the promises of God. But the reason I began this morning reading out of Ephesians... Paul's spiritual call to arms is because Joshua, while it's a prophetic book, while it's a picture of taking promises, it is also a very military book. Where as we read through it, as we study it, we see brilliant strategies for warfare. And this is huge for the spirit-filled life. 
In fact, the more you enter into the Spirit-filled life, the more you aware you are of the Holy Spirit at work with you, the more you will be attached. The more you will become aware of the work of God in spiritual warfare. It goes hand in hand. I think maybe some of the timidity with which some people approach the Holy Spirit is a latent, hidden fear inside of us that, man, if I get too spiritual, I'm going to become aware of things I don't want to be aware of. And yet, you know what, gang? He prepares you. He girds you up. He puts the armor on that you need when you need it. And so calls us and invites us to go forward. As we grow in our understanding of the Holy Spirit, we will begin to understand and recognize Spirit-led strategies with almost a military application because we are involved in a spiritual battle. A battle that rages in the heavenlies. And it's not the kind of spiritual battle that's the stuff of Frank Peretti or Tim LaHaye novels. We like to read about that stuff and go, ooh. You know, I remember the first time I read This Present Darkness by Frank Peretti, and it freaked me out. But I couldn't wait to get back to reading it because I enjoy being freaked out. You know, kind of like a scary movie. You don't want to watch it, but you want to watch it. But it's so much more than that. It's not just the experience of emotion. And there's something here that we Christians can easily misunderstand, and that is this. In the Spirit, there's organization. There is administration. There is coordination. There is strategy. Now Jesus said in John 3 verse 8, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. And so we can easily take that and think that being born of the Spirit means that we just kind of float troll off from here to there, without a clue of where we're going or what's going on. And that's not what Jesus said. He said someone who's born of the Spirit, like the wind, may not know where you're coming from and where you're going, but that doesn't mean the Spirit doesn't know. The Spirit does know. God has a plan in place. He has a strategy for winning the war. In fact, that strategy has already won the war. And if we're spirit-led, spirit-filled people, we should expect to become more and more aligned with the grand and glorious strategy of the Lord. Now, this this was new for me. Because I have a tendency to kind of shun the idea of strategy. Because in the church especially, it has become about programs. Strategy for the the right program here or there or over here to reach people or, or to do this ministry or that ministry. And we get so caught up in the business plan of church that we miss the spirit. God spun me around this week and said, Rick, yeah, those strategies, they can get you off course, but I've got a strategy. And I am organized. And my forces are real. And my plan is good. Align yourself to that. Now in the first 11 chapters of Joshua, it covers seven years. We know this because of Caleb's age, which we'll see possibly next week. Caleb was 40, he was 38 when they first crossed in. He ends up being 85 at the end, so, or no wait, 38. Do the math, it's seven years, Okay. I'm not going to take the time to go there right now. <laughs> Hayden was sitting there. He was sick all week and he was out of school and so he was doing math last night. And I'm telling you, fourth grade math and I'm going... <laughs> Corey? 
My oldest is helping out. Anyway, these first 11 chapters are a coverage of seven years in real time of warfare. This is not an overnight thing. We can read chapter 10 and we see Joshua's southern campaign and then chapter 11 and see the northern campaign and we think, oh, two chapters. It went just like that. No, it was a seven-year campaign. How long have we been in the war on terror? How long have we been in Iraq? Four years? Okay. Add three years. That's how long it took Joshua and the Israelites to take the land. We're getting a little weary of this war. At least that's what the media keeps saying. I keep watching. They keep telling me we're weary. And I'm like, I want to win. That's just me. A little plug there for my opinion. But watch the efficient strategy. Think about this. Consider what has happened here. Because as we read intricately verse by verse, you can miss the big picture. And the big picture is simply this. First, Israel cuts across the center of the land. If you plot it out on a map, they cross the Jordan River and they go directly to Jericho. Smack dab in the middle of the land. Then from there, they begin to cut across again further to Ai. Now they cut a direct line in the middle and then the campaign heads south. Chapter 10, they they take the southern region. Chapter 11, now today, they head north and it's the full-on northern campaign. And it is a familiar and brilliant military strategy that has been used throughout history and by the way is still studied today in places like West Point. Joshua's strategy for warfare, which is the Lord's strategy, is still looked at in some of our military institutions here in America. In Israel today, the Israeli Defense Force still views Joshua as a great military hero whose method is worth emulating. What is that method? What's that strategy? You've heard it before. Divide and conquer. And that's what Joshua does. He divides the land right up the middle so north can't help south and south can't help north. And then he takes the south and then he takes the north and it's a brilliant strategy. Now with this strategy in mind, pay close attention and consider especially how this might impact the spirit-led life that we've been talking about for the last several weeks. Verse 1 of chapter 11. Then it came about that when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of it, that he sent to Jobab, king of Madan, and the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaph, and to the kings who were in the north in the hill country, and in the Arabah, south of Chinnereth, and in the lowland, and on the heights of Dor, on the west, to the Canaanite on the east, and on the west, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Jebusite, and the hill country, and the Hivite, at the foot of Hermon, and Mount Hermon is the furthest mountain north in Israel, there in the land of Mizpah. Now a quick Bible student note on this word in verse 2, Chinnerot, or Chinnerot. That is a familiar word. <clears throat> But it's the first mention of this place in the Bible, and you need to pay attention to it because it's going to come up again. The word Chinnerot means harps. Harps. It is a place that is still called that today. It's called more specifically Lake Canaret. Lake Canaret. You may know it as the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is not, by the way, a, a salt sea. It is a lake. It's a vast, huge lake. It's the only freshwater lake in the country of Israel. And so it is incredibly important to the land. It's where the Israelis today draw their water from. We're down in the south, or or actually about the middle of of Israel, is the the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea. And that's not a pretty place. You don't want to draw anything from there except for minerals and mud and and sell it to people like us who will pay exorbitant fees for it. But Lake Canaret, Lake Galilee, the Sea of Galilee in the north. Going on in verse 4, it says, They came out, they and all their armies with them, 
as many people as the sand that is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. Now the, the historian, Roman historian, one time Jew, he, he kind of uh, turned to the Romans, but Josephus, Josephus, one of the greatest historians we have for this time frame and looking back, he was the first to speculate on the actual number of militia or, or military men here. He said 300,000 infantry, 10,000 cavalry, and 20,000 chariots. And horses, by the way, the cavalry, horses were like the Humvees of the day, and chariots were like the tanks. An army who had horses and chariots was a dominating army, and Israel had none of it. They didn't have any horses. They didn't have chariots to fight. They fought on foot. So as they go up against these armies, they are completely outgunned. Which is always kind of the way it's been for Israel. Since they became a nation in 1948, the fact that they have won every war they've engaged in is stunning. It's miraculous because they have been consistently outgunned and outmanned. Because God's got a purpose for this land. But this massive, formidable army is described in this way, like the sand that is on the seashore. And that's a biblical phrase. The sand on the seashore. You go back to Genesis 22, verse 17. The Lord says to Abraham, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. God told Abraham his descendants would be like the sands of the seashore and the stars of the heaven. And by the way, scientists have postulated something interesting here, that the sands of the seashore, every grain of sand on every beach in the world, would probably be roughly equivalent to the number of stars in the universe. We may find that when we actually get to heaven and can talk to the Lord about some of these things, but it is equivalent. That he created every grain of sand and every star, same number. But what's interesting about this to me is that the sand, the sand seems to indicate in the Bible, Abraham's physical offspring. His physical offspring. Some of whom are the opposing army here. Because remember, Abraham had a son named Ishmael. And he had Isaac. Sands of the seashore may indicate something of the physical offspring of Abraham, whereas the stars indicate the spiritual offspring of Abraham, which isn't just the Jews. It's people of faith. It's people of faith. Daniel chapter 12 verse 3 says those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And Paul says in Galatians 3.29 if you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's descendants. Heirs according to the promise. I've shared before growing up in Southern California which is such a melting pot I never really felt like I had a heritage. You know, my, my folks, my dad came out of, out of Texas and, and my mom was born in New York but then raised in California. And so it just, I never really felt like I had a heritage. I had friends who said they could come from this country or that country and, and they had this long, rich, deep heritage. And I never felt like I had one until I read Galatians 3.29. I have a heritage that runs back to Abraham. That's cool. I have a spiritual heritage as a person of faith. I am connected. What's the point of this? John 8.39, Jesus said, If you're Abraham's children, if you are his descendants, do the deeds of Abraham. What do you mean, Jesus? Faith. Faith. 
What did Abraham do that was so special? Oh, he stumbled along just like we do. He lied, he deceived, he made mistakes, he failed, he sinned. But he had faith. He believed God. He took God at His word. In fact, he took possession of the promises that had yet to happen. And that's faith. And Ephesians 6.16 tells us to take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. How do you fight back the attacks of Satan? Faith. You believe in the promises of God. Not just the things that have happened, but the things he says will happen if you keep trusting in him. Satan fires off those darts. He tries to discourage. He tries to dissuade. He'll attack in the most unexpected of places. And the Lord says, you hold up the shield of faith because i got promises for you and they will come to pass. I am true to my word. Do you believe me? Yes, Lord, I believe you. Faith. Faith. And that's the first spirit-led strategy we see in this chapter. Our faith, gang, if you're taking notes, our faith is not in numbers. Our faith is not in numbers. Israel goes up against overwhelming odds in this land. All these numbers I told you before, the 300,000 infantry, 10,000 cavalry, 20,000 chariots, that was just in the north. I didn't include all that they had already conquered in the south. Overwhelming odds. But our faith is not in numbers. Flipping your Bibles over to Psalm, the third Psalm. Third Psalm. Let me just read this to you. The Psalm of David. And by the way, you might note some of your Bibles have these little headings and tell you what the Psalm is about. It says that this is the Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. David fled and he was outmanned because Absalom had gathered around him hundreds, thousands of people who were loyal to Absalom and no longer loyal to David. And they were going after David. It came right out of his own family. There's an unexpected place for an attack to come. But how many of you have ever experienced... Don't raise your hand, but... How many of you have ever ever experienced the attack coming from within, from the closest place that you never thought it would come? So here's David, and listen to what he says. Oh Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no deliverance for him in God. But you, oh Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and He answered me from His holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek, and you have shattered the teeth of the wicked. I love when David says that. He's talking about his enemies, and he says, break their teeth. That's vivid. I like that. Verse 8. I pray that sometimes. You know, when someone's really getting on my nerves, just break their teeth, Lord. In love. Verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. What is David saying? Man, you can have thousands against me, but my faith is not in numbers. My faith is in the Lord. My faith is in the strength of God. My faith is not bound to the size of my army. And regardless of the size of opposition in your life, as you fight on in the battle, the spiritual battle that is raging, forget the opposition, but don't forget John's words. 1 John 4.4 Greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. Our faith is not in numbers. The enemy, however, is big on numbers. Satan likes numbers. He likes intimidation. 
He glommed on to this idea of strength in numbers and even used the concept of the sands of the seashore. For that phrase, the sands of the seashore, is used more often negatively in the Bible than positively. What do you mean? In the book of Judges, chapter 7, verse 12, we're told the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts. And their camels were without number as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Judges chapter 7. There was a military commander that, in that day. His name was Gideon. And you may remember Gideon's story. How he started out with an army of 30,000 having to go up against an army that was like the sands of the seashore. 30,000 wasn't enough. And he's praying and talking to the Lord about it. And the Lord says, you know, 30,000, that's just not a good size of an army for you, Gideon. He says, yeah, I know, I know. Can I have more? And the Lord says, no, you need less. Excuse me? Yeah, you need to cut it down. And eventually, the short version is, the Lord whittles down Gideon's army to a size of 300. 300 against the sands of the seashore because that's how God works. Our faith is not in numbers. My dad used to have a phrase when I was a kid. Some of you have heard me say this before. I'd say, Dad, I could take you down. And you go, oh yeah, you and whose army? And I learned pretty quickly to say, Gideon's. That's the army I want. Our faith is not in numbers. What about 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 5? Another example. It tells us the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. And people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. And in that chapter we discover that Saul loses his kingdom over his fear of numbers. Over his fear of the size of the approaching army. And out of his impatience, he loses the Spirit of God. 1 Samuel 13. It's interesting also that Revelation chapter 13 verse 1 says the following, The dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Why would the dragon stand on the sand of the seashore? Because Satan likes numbers. He likes the attack to be big. He loves to intimidate. And if you can feel just a little intimidated in your spiritual life, just a little like, man, it's, it's overwhelming. I just can't do this or can't be that or I don't think I can go there. Saying goes, right, intimidation. Big army, sand of the seashore. In fact, Revelation chapter 20 tells us after the millennial kingdom, when all things are almost complete, it says when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war and the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. The Bible says what's going to happen. Jesus will slay them with the breath of his mouth. And it's not because he needs a breath mint. It's because his word is all powerful. And our faith is not in numbers. Which is why I believe Jesus said in Matthew 18, 19, Again I say to you, if two or three of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Something I've begun to really trust, and it's been somewhat recent, is in a small group of prayer warriors. Two or three people gathered together praying on a weekly or daily basis. A handful of students gathering to read and study the Word. Single acts of love and mercy. Gang, these are far more effective than mass evangelistic campaigns. I got a forward this last week about a Billy Graham campaign. 
in New Orleans. Maybe some of you have seen that forward, and I just want to let you know it, it is a hoax. He had a campaign there, but the campaign, it talks about how he goes into, out of the, the stadium there in New Orleans, and, and he proclaims, we need to take New Orleans, and, and he leaves the stadium walking, and, and his son Franklin with him, and, and thousands of people go into the streets, and it's a wonderful story. As you read it, it's like, wow, because people are coming out of the bars, and they're pouring out their drinks, and they're professing faith in Jesus Christ, and the whole thing is a hoax. And it makes me sick because I don't understand why, especially a Christian, would start a rumor like that on the internet. Probably intending to encourage people in the church, but it undermines the truth. And the truth is this, we don't need thousands, we need one or two praying to the Lord. We don't have to be big in numbers. We want to have an increase in faith and in trust. May you give me two or three praying people any day over a church of a thousand and watch what happens. Because our faith is simply not in numbers. Now in Joshua, this massive coalition force gathers up against Israel. Verse 5, it says, All these kings, having agreed to meet, came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And that's another important place. Bible students note this. These waters are located in a great northern valley in Israel. It is a valley called Megiddo. And the Bible tells us that a time is coming when a great coalition of the world's nations will gather for war in this exact same place, this vast valley, and it is overwhelming. To stand on Mount Carmel and look out over Megiddo, it's huge. I mean, it's it's breathtaking how big this is. And that valley, gang, was filled in Joshua's day. It will be filled with the nations of, of the world in Jesus' day as he returns. And he will fight. And we call that Armageddon. But verse 6 going on, the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, because tomorrow at this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all the people of war came upon them suddenly by the waters of Merom and attacked them. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel so that they defeated them and pursued them as far as great Sidon and Mizraphath Maim and the valley of Mizpah to the east and they struck them until no survivor was left in the land. Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. But watch this. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Fine, burn the chariots, but poor horses. Now i got to say this. I don't like horses. Oh, I mean, I, I like watching them. I love to see them in the field. Let them run. They're beautiful. But I don't trust them. <laughs> they have thrown my wife. They have tossed my daughter. And they love to stand in front of my gate so I can't get home. <laughs> It's amazing. Late at night, I'm walking home from Bible study. I got my little flashlight. It's really dark. I have to have the flashlight because you've got to watch the ground as you're walking over there. And I get almost to the gate, and all of a sudden, right here will be Buck. And I can't see him, and he knows. He knows. He just stands there and waits till I get right beside him, and then he brays. <sighs> Sorry if I spit on you there, David. But that's what he does to me. It's like, oh, Buck! And there are times where he scares me out of my skin. The flashlight goes flying. I go running for the gate. I don't trust horses. But I really don't feel like we should hamstring them either. Hamstringing means cutting their tendons so they're lame. It makes them ineffective. And I would think, great, take the army, fight the battle, 
But take the horses for yourselves. So that the next nation that you have to fight, you've got the chariots. You've got the Humvees. Now you're driving the tanks, Israel. God says, no, that's not my method. That's not the way we're going to do it. Why? Why do they have to hamstring these horses? Deuteronomy 17 and verse 15 says, going back to the law, you may recall this, you shall set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses from among your countrymen. And you shall set as king over yourselves... You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not, he shall not multiply horses for himself. Nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt, which was famous for their horses in the day, to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. Again, remember, the horses and the chariots, these are the methods of high-tech warfare. The army who had these was the stronger army, had the upper hand. But gang, Israel's military movements were not to include horses and chariots, according to the Lord. He didn't want that for them. Their self, their speed, their deliverance was to come from one source and one source alone, and that's the Lord. God didn't want the army to be able to say, look at our chariots. It's the strength of our horses that won the battle. In fact, Isaiah verse 30, or chapter 30 and verse 15, tells us the following. Thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you were not willing. You said, No, we'll flee on horses. Therefore, you'll flee. We'll ride on swift horses. Therefore, those who pursue you will be swift. You think you're going to attack on a horse? The reality is you're going to jump on that horse and you're going to flee for your life. So hamstring them. Cut the tendons. They are to be no use to you. Isaiah 31 verse 1 says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they're many and in horsemen because they're very strong. They do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. And so God would say to Israel, when it comes to horses, just say nay. Don't saddle yourself with those things. Psalm 20 verse 7 tells us the following and and this is a great psalm just to put to memory. Some boast in chariots and some in horses. But we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stood upright. Save, O Lord, may the King answer us in the day we call. Some trust in horses. Today we could make the correlation. Some trust in technology, human innovation and efficiency, modern methodologies and human strategy. And Wednesday night I mentioned that to our way of thinking, the time that Jesus came into the world was not an efficient time. A time where he grew up in rural Galilee without transportation. Everywhere he went he had to go by foot. No internet. When Jesus spoke it was on a hillside. He grew up a country boy in a place where I would think would be very inefficient and yet Jesus had maximum historical impact. Whether you're a Christian or not, you realize there has never been a man who lived on the planet who has had the impact of Jesus Christ. And yet it happened in the least likely of places at the least likely of times. And consider this battle-ready implement from Paul in Ephesians 6. He says, verse 15, Have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. He doesn't say, arm your chariot with the gospel. 
He doesn't say, ride the horse of the gospel. He says, put the gospel on your feet and you go. Because even today, the most effective strategy is the foot for spreading the gospel. It's just taking it to one door and another and another and another. Many of you are here this morning have come to the bridge because someone walked up to you, didn't ride up, didn't come rolling up, they walked up to you and began to speak the name of Jesus. And that is so much more effective. In fact, spirit-led strategy number two. The first one, our faith is not in numbers. The second one, our feet are not on horses. Our feet are not on horses. Or the tools or mechanisms of, of man... Paul says, just put the gospel on your feet and go. In fact, in Romans 10.15, Paul says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now, as we organize in the church, we've gotten very good at, at methods and movies and tracks and tricks and technological approaches of evangelism in the church today. And I still believe that the Lord would say the most effective way to evangelize, to save people who have been captured by the opposing army, is to go by foot. And tell them about Jesus. Feet shod with the gospel of peace. Let me ask you this question. Do you want to really see God at work in your life? Do you want, amen, do you want to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that it's the Lord and not your own innovation? Hamstring your horses. Hamstring your horses. Put yourself in a position where it's only possible for the Lord to be glorified. And not you in your wisdom and strength and chariots and horses. It's also interesting to me, by the way, in 2 Kings chapter 23, 11, and you can go back and check this out, it indicates that horses were also linked to pagan sun god worship. Which is another reason why God says, I don't want you to have anything to do with them. I don't want you to have that technological connection. It's interesting to me because our technology today is but a click away from paganism, isn't it? Click, I'm there. Click, pornography. Click, humanity. Click, human mechanisms and paganism and sin. God says hamstring it. Tie it up. Make it lame. Burn it if you have to. Don't trust it. You don't need it. You need the Word. You need the Spirit. And you need a pair of feet to carry the Word to a lost world. It's that simple. And so our feet are not on horses. Verse 10 going on. Joshua then turned back at that time and he captured Hazor and he struck its king with the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all these kingdoms. They struck every person who was in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was no one left to breathe and he burned Hazor with fire. And Joshua captured all the cities of these kings and all their kings and he struck them with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed them just as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded however Israel did not burn any, any cities that stood on their mounds except Hazor alone which Joshua burned and all the spoil of these cities and the cattle the sons of Israel took as their plunder but they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them they left no one who breathed this is massive they are on the move they're rolling here they're walking verse 15 just as the Lord had commanded Moses' servant so Joshua so Moses commanded Joshua and so Joshua did I like this verse he left nothing undone of all the Lord had commanded Moses is there anything in your life that's undone that you know the Lord has commanded you to 
I love the story of Larry Stickle's baptism. Because he came to a place in his life just recently. How long ago was that? Six or eight months ago. You may have noticed that Larry has gray hair, which means he's been around a little longer than I have. Okay? But Larry recognized something. I'm picking on him today, but he recognized there was something undone. And so he did it. What's undone in your life? That the Lord has commanded you to do. Tells us verse 16, Joshua took all the land, the hill country, and all the Negev, and all the land of Goshen, the lowland, the Arabah, the hill country of Israel, and its lowland from Mount Halak, that rises toward Seir, even as far as Baal Gad to the valley of Lebanon at the foot of Mount Hermon, again in the north. He captured all their kings and struck them down and put them to death. Joshua waged war a long time with all these kings. And this is still describing the northern campaign. In totality, a campaign with the southern that lasts seven years. And prophetically, it's interesting because that lines up with another time, another campaign, another clearing out of the land that will last seven years. We call it the tribulation, described in Revelation 6 through 19. But verse 19 goes on and says, There was not a city which made peace with the sons of Israel, except the Hivites living in Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts to meet Israel in battle in order that he might utterly destroy them that they might receive no mercy but that he might destroy them just as the Lord had commanded Moses and I I have to cry foul not fair if I read this correctly and I believe I do God hardened the hearts of the ites in the land so that he could destroy them so that they wouldn't change their mind So that as Israel approached with their mass army, no one would repent. God did that. And God hardened their hearts. A lot of people read this whole hardening of the heart thing in the Old Testament and we just prefer to avoid it. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Ooh, I don't like that. What about his free will, his choice? God hardens the hearts of the Canaanites here. I don't like this issue of God hardening the hearts of men. Listen, let me explain this. God is simply buttressing a heart that is already bent for destruction and rebellion. God is basically honoring the decision of a person that is already set against him. He says, if you want to rebel against me, I'll support you in that cause. If you want to be against me, if you choose, if you reject me, then I honor that. You will reject me. That's why the Bible says in Revelation 22, verse 11, Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. And the one who is filthy still be filthy. Let the one who is righteous practice righteousness. And the one who is holy still keep himself holy. At the end of this book, John makes a stunning statement. He says, choose. Choose. Isn't that what Joshua says toward the end of this same book? Choose this day whom you will serve. Don't vacillate. Don't go back and forth. You commit to your choice God wants that for you it sounds stunning that that God would honor would bear up would, would harden a heart set against him but he's not doing anything that was not already set in motion by the person you want to talk about free will these are people who are coming against the people of God who had 400 plus years 440 years really to repent and return to the Lord and they rebelled and rejected and settled in their paganism and so God said okay if that's what you want if that's what you have chosen then your hearts are going to be hard and that's the way the Lord works 
Verse 21. Then Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, and from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. There were no Anakim left in the land of the sons of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, in Ashdod, some remained. Now, a couple things here. I want you to, to dial in and not miss this. We're almost done. But there's a, a city here mentioned, and it may sound familiar to some of you, in verse 22. It's the city of Gath. Does that ring a bell to anybody? Who was from Gath? Goliath. Goliath came among the Philistines. Goliath comes from the Philistine city of Gath. We know that Goliath was at least 9 feet 9 inches tall. But there's a new player coming into the NBA apparently who's 7... Anybody know 7'8"? Seven, 7'8 eight? Seven, eight or 7'9. Seven, this, this is a big guy. Add 2 feet. And that was Goliath's minimum height. And some believe he was possibly as tall as 12 foot 6. This was a big dude. But what's curious is the Philistines were not a big people. They were a smallish uh, maritime people who had come across the Aegean Sea and landed there in Israel. And by the way, those who would say the Palestinians of today are the Philistines of yesterday, the Palestinians of today are Arabic. The Philistines were of Grecian origin or, or European origin. Completely different people group, but I'll let you think about that. They were not a big people, and yet Goliath comes out of Gap. Why? Because some of the Anakim had remained. Where are the Anakim? Go back to Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. Just going to throw this out there to freak you out and then we'll move on. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 6 verse 1 says, It came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. Because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were also on the earth in those days. And also afterwards, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Now quickly... In every case, virtually in the scripture, this phrase, sons of God, bene Elohim in the Hebrew, refers to either angelic or demonic beings. If you read it that way in Genesis 6, what you read is that this is when the angelic demonic beings came in to be with the daughters of men. The sons of God, angels, daughters of men, human beings? Are we talking about an intermarriage of uh, the spirit realm with the flesh gang I would say at a minimum at a minimum we're talking about demonically possessed people marrying with the daughters of men but I think it's much more than that the Bible indicates the result of this interaction between the sons of God Bene Elohim and the daughters of men was the Nephilim giants Nephilim is translated two things giants or oh, fallen ones the Nephilim 
Giants or fallen ones. Numbers 13 verse 33 tells us, There also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, Anak, the Anakim, are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. That was the first group of spies who went into the land. They saw these big guys. They saw the sons of Anak, the Anakim, who were related to, connected to, the Nephilim. Now, people have argued this point and said, okay, even if there was this marriage of fallen angels with the daughters of men, and even if coming out of that it created this super race of giants, come on, Rick, they were all wiped out in the flood, right? They were all gone. They were all waylaid when the waters covered the earth, and only Noah and his family remained. I've heard that question before. The problem is that verse 4 of Genesis chapter 6 indicates that the Nephilim would be on the earth even after the flood. Listen again to the phraseology. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, Noah's days, and also afterward. Not only during the time of Noah, but after the time of Noah. Well, I just can't believe that. That's just way too out there. Listen, I'm mentioning this for one reason. We're still talking about the Spirit-led, Spirit-filled life. And if you truly want to be Spirit-led in the life that you live, you will become more acutely aware of a whole new dimension. 